Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to the Movie Wars podcast special interview edition. Uh, and listen, it's not every day that you talk to an Oscar winner, and I got the opportunity to interview Tim McGovern, who not only won an Oscar for his work on Total Recall, but actually won a Special Achievement Award, which means that the work that he and his team did on Total Recall advanced the industry so much in the way of effects that they had to get a unanimous uh, recognition before the ceremony even began. Uh, so he had that much of an impact. And I guarantee you, even if you haven't heard the name Tim McGovern, you've seen a Tim McGovern film. I mean, listen to this resume, Tron, Total Recall, Last Action Hero, The Ghost in the Darkness, Stigmata, Equilibrium, Sin City 2, Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, Huntsman, Winner's War, and Dunkirk, and most recently, First Man with Ryan Gosling and Jungle Cruise. So, and he joined us to talk about his work on Total Recall, and he has stories about Arnold, he knows James Cameron, he has just been a, a huge impact to the movies that you and I love that we talk about in this podcast. Um, so I hope you enjoy it. Um, and I just want to say, uh, first and foremost, that Tim, you know, whenever you go into an interview with someone, especially someone who, who has clout or someone that has, you know, accomplishments in the industry, you know, time is always of the essence. That wasn't the case with Tim. He was so gracious with his time. He gave me so much information. He just said, keep asking questions. The dude was in between calls. He's flying back from India because he's doing work there. He's doing work in LA. And I just couldn't believe how kind and how gracious he was with his time. So I wanted to give him a shout out for that. Thank you so much. And I hope you enjoy. Tim, how you doing? Live from Toronto. How you doing, buddy? Hey, it's great to be here. Uh, I'm temporarily here. This is not my usual uh, city to be hanging in, but it's where my wife was uh, brought up. So uh, we're here right now. But uh, good to be here with you. And I've enjoyed your show. So uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be talking to you. You're a very interesting guy. Oh, well, thank you. Well, we're, we've enjoyed so much of your work and, uh, and, uh, we're going to end up covering a lot of films that you've worked on, on the podcast right now. We're talking about total recall. Um, that's why you're here today, but we'll talk about more of your career, but, you know, speaking of your career, let's, let's launch right in. Can you give us, you know, just for the people listening, kind of a, you know, where you started, um, you know, with your career, you know, movies that you're proud of that you've worked on, or just however you tell people about your career, I'd love to hear all about it. Well, I got into this before there was a, this to get into, you know, uh, you couldn't do anything digital on a movie, uh, you know, before a certain point. Certainly 1982 is when Tron came out. I uh, worked uh, in Chicago out of uh, college, I had a double major in graphic design and uh, photography. You couldn't major in CG. The, there was a collaborative project done between the College of uh, uh, Information Engineering, which is a, a nice old name for uh, people who majored in computer science information engineering and they would put art students with engineers and see what they would come up with because they had the ability to do some sorts of graphics with vector machines and things like that and uh, we would be more visual and didn't know that much about programming and the programmers could you know figure out how to do stuff but anyway uh, I ended up doing a little piece for a TV station that I was working for as an in, yeah, right out of school uh, while I was still in school actually I was double majoring and working full time at a TV station in Chicago WTTW Window to the World uh, PBS station and 
I was really interested in doing graphics. The graphics at the time were being done, on-air graphics were being done as motion control, uh, multi-element combined, you know, combined uh, works. You know, they were either put through opticals or all of the imagery was shot with mats and composited in-camera latent, you know, uh, and then sent to the lab and voila there it comes out oh we, we oops we messed up <laughs> frame 23 the mat is slipping and you know we got to do it again it was like performance art to some degree because you know if you did it wrong you did it over and some of our shots you know we did tron i'm sorry i'm, I'm jumping ahead but we all i ultimately got to get to california because that's where all the best stuff was being done at the time. Uh, actually, a friend of mine got there first, worked for Robert Abel Associates. That's one of the first places I worked outside of TV directly. And uh, my friend said, you know, why don't you come out to California? And I said, well, yeah, I don't know. Is it New York, L.A.? I don't know which one I should go to. And he said, well, it's a question of hot smog or cold smog. <laughs> so I said, well, okay, based on that, let me try cold. Or let me try hot. And uh, one of my former teachers from college was R. Greenberg, and he started R. Greenberg and Associates. And that was in New York. But I came out. I... I, I started working for a, t a TV station. ABC moved me out, actually, and I worked for ABC with their on-air graphics, and they started a new department where they had 30 people where they chose out of 300 people, 30 people, and I was one of them because of the work I had already been doing with uh, photography and uh, multi-exposure work. So uh, there was an opening at Robert Abel, and my friend said, well, you know, I interviewed six times. Uh, so my friend said, uh, you know, it took me six interviews to get hired here. So there's an opening. Why don't you get your first one out of the way? So I figured, okay, you know, uh, it's going to take six or more. God knows. And so uh, I went in and I showed the work I'd been doing at ABC, the work I had done before. I, I didn't mention WT, uh, WFLD, Chicago Channel 32, and before that, the uh, public TV station. And... Uh, I had done some programming. And anyway, the base of the thing was Bill Kovacs, the guy who originated Wavefront Software, uh, was the head of software and uh, hiring technical directors, which I was being hired for at the time. And so uh, he uh, interviewed me and liked me and said, you got the job. And I was like, oh, I don't have to come back five more times. Okay, great. And so I quit. ABC and I got over there right away and in those days it was there was there was a software manual kind of but everything was written by the company themselves their own software Bill Kovacs had a big hand in making uh, us uh, a software package that you were able to do vector graphic display stuff, shoot it off the screen, shoot many, many, many exposures in order to make the imagery fill the screen because we only could do 2,000 or 4,000 vectors at a time. And so you couldn't even shoot one whole image uh, for a whole frame uh, that would look like something we'd expect to see. So anyway, uh, I did a commercial or two, and then before I knew it, I was on Tron. And Tron was a 55-second piece of transition animation, which got our friend uh, Jeff Bridges from uh, the game, uh, from being scanned by the computer 
onto the game grid to where he was, you know, fresh meat for uh, fighting it out in Tron. So it was his point of view as he was being sort of microized and uh, turned into, I don't know, electrons or whatever, uh, and ultimately formed on the game grid. And so that took us like five months to choreograph it, to uh, design, you know, the look, the color, uh, and film it. We needed to shoot four uh, pieces that ran continuous but could be cut together at least, and they were each 100 hours on camera. And if you made one mistake, do it again. And uh, I had a team of uh, four others, uh, Kenny Merman, Frank Vitz, uh, Doc Bailey, and uh, there was one other guy, I can't think of his name now. But anyway, we, w when that came out, and this sequence was in there, and I saw my name on the screen for the first time ever, and it was really big. <laughs> it was you know, really big across the screen. I went, this TV stuff I used to do, if there was a credit, the credits go by at the end, like, phew! You know, they have to technically put them there, but who who the hell could read them? And here it is sitting on the screen, and it's like, I think that was called the Digital Scene Simulator or something like that. That's They didn't have the same titles we have now. So anyway, I thought that was a pretty damn cool thing, and I thought, this movie stuff, I kind of like this, and if, there's more, if I can do more of this, it would be great. The problem was back then, there weren't many things that computer graphics could do that would look real to fit into a movie. Everything looked like a computer graphic display the way people in the future would think they would be. And so we had a long way to go. And so I, I did quite a bit of uh, award-winning work at this studio because Robert Abel was an amazing guy. He was very creative. He was very, uh, very good at getting jobs. You know, convincing a client that we could do stuff, and the the, the thing back, this introduced me to the original concept of CG, which was, we're not entirely sure how we're going to do this, but we're going to do it. We'll figure a way to do it, and then, you know, it'll get done, and we think we can do it by when you need it, and we'll charge you this much because. It seems like it should be okay, and then honestly, it would take whatever it took, and it would go on, uh, you know, mostly on time. But there, there was a time later. Jim Cameron said that was the period when liars and dreamers were running the industry, and that really nobody knew how long anything took anyway, because we had no. It wasn't like we did it before, and we could say, "Well, in the last show, it went this way." Everything was brand new. So anyway, I, I was at Robert Abel, and then. I say we talk about the time when the asteroid hit and the dinosaurs were all killed because all the CG businesses went on a business at around the same time. It's like 1982, 83, no, 85, 85. So it all got mixed up. The part of everybody who... This guy, this team was over here with those guys, and those guys were. Nobody talked to anybody in the industry. Everybody was, you know, secretive about how they did things, and they all were. Uh, you know, they didn't talk to the other guys because they were the enemy who may, maybe they got the job that they wanted to get for that commercial and we got it instead. I did a thing called Sexy Robot, which was the first time that human motion had been applied to a CG character in a commercial or film. And uh, that hit the Super Bowl. It won some awards. It, everybody was kind of wow. But, you know, it probably only showed bes beside the Super Bowl six times. And... Uh, and, and then it was gone. 
And uh, but it made a big impact on uh, what people thought of computer graphics and what they thought it could do. And it encouraged a whole bunch of other sh- uh, commercials that involved computer uh, animated characters in one way or another. And uh, there was Hard Woman that was done by uh, Digital Productions uh, was Mick Jagger doing uh, the song, and he's part Mick Jagger, and sometimes he's a CG version of Mick. Jagger and he's dancing with a CG woman who's supposed to be some amazingly hot uh, woman at the time. Uh, and uh, it, it's another famous piece. But anyway, uh, those those companies all went out of business. We all recombined and uh, I ended up at a place called Metrolite Studios. Jim Kristoff was the owner and uh, businessman uh, who ran that and then through uh, the right set of circumstances, uh, we got to do a test for an X-ray skeleton sequence because motion capture had been invented. Uh, everybody had been seeing these amazing medical images done of MRIs and things like that, and they could see organs and bones and all that stuff. And these guys, you know, they didn't say they wanted an MRI in real time, but they at least wanted an X-ray in real time. And that if a person would walk behind an X-ray device on the screen, you would see all the way through them to their skeleton, so we would know if they were armed or not. So in the movie, Total Recall, the idea was on Mars because there's terrorism, which, you know, they were a little ahead of the curve about having to be scanned for weapons before getting onto some mode of transport. Uh, and so we had to come up with what that would look like. And uh, that was something that had to be invented. You know, there was no database. You couldn't just go, hey, let me get that database for that human skeleton. Let me get that, you know, that uh, database for the dog. There's a seeing eye dog in the very first shot. Uh, uh, first sequence when they show basic the first sequence is meant to show you how it works normally and then later Arnold goes through it with a gun and it goes off and and everything goes from there Uh, so we had to digitize the skeleton we had to buy one of those plastic skeletons because we didn't want to contribute to the murder of innocent people for their skeletons for medical purposes. So we had a plastic one. We had to buy a 3D digitizer, write some software so that we could 3D digitize every one of the bones, put it back together in a computer in a hierarchical structure. And then we had to be ready for the motion capture on set down in Mexico City at Cherubusco Studios where Total Recall was shot, the same place I think Dune was shot uh, a little bit before that, maybe five, six years. Anyway, uh, we went down there, we had the equipment, we had everybody ready to capture, uh, motion capture of Arnold Schwarzenegger doing this this thing, uh, this, this action. And uh, after we had it all calibrated for Arnold and uh, we, we started motion capture and we were being told by the technician who came with the motion captures uh, set up you know, from the company, oh, this is amazing, you know, we've never had data this good, it, it's, uh, you know, it's, we're going to take it back to the studio and we're going to just, you know, compute it just like that and you're going to have all this animation you know, uh, perfectly. And, you know, we could watch, we put these uh, reflective balls on on back then, and uh, there were lights at every one of the cameras, and there's six cameras shooting them, but with, eight, you know, regular video, uh, black and white VHS video. 
so the resolution is horrible, and they're giving us 60 samples per second, which is great, except for it's really half video res at 60 frames per second. So we have even less resolution than we think we have, but all these different views are supposed to give the computer an ability to find where those points are in space, as long as you know which one's which, and that was the problem. It didn't really figure which one was which. So uh, we came back from there and they gave a lot of excuses before they finally admitted that it didn't work. So luckily I had had other cameras. Uh, some of the live action that was shot for the film had a back camera of what was going on behind Eric Brevik, the visual effects supervisor on the film, was smart enough to put a, what we call a witness cam behind the screen. So we actually were able to see the main big shot, the order that people walked in. You know, there were eight eight or nine takes i'm pretty sure we used take eight and uh in this particular take the german shepherd seeing eye dog decided that after a long day and whatever he had for lunch that it was a nice place to take a stop and he starts to hunch over like he's going to do his business and uh that's the take we used they still have footage of it on the special features for Total Recall, they actually have the footage of that dog squatting in the exactly. I don't know how, when the last time you actually looked at him was, but that footage is on there. Oh, that's funny. Uh, I think we talked about it when I recorded something for the special features. But uh, it, uh, Paul decided that it might be too distracting. He thought it was funny and to use that take, but it was a good take for all the other reasons of spacing of everybody and the performances and stuff like that. But we had to find a way, you know, had they done the motion capture properly, the data doesn't just go into your program and just spit out you know, a skeleton animating the way that you saw it, you know, as the balls on the screen from the guy who acted it. These days, you can watch the skeleton perform next to the guy who is performing it, and it all happens in real time. Back then, there was a processing step that went on, and which meant that you do this, wait some time, it comes back, and then you go, oh, it didn't work. <laughs> oh, that's good. I wish I knew this back when I was shooting it. But uh, they, uh, so we used it to basically rotoscope, you know, project the image on the screen, match up a CG uh, character to his keyframes, which, you know, you have to choose them. You have to decide when are the right frames for each limb in order to get the right acceleration, deceleration, the right arcs in the right uh, positions. And anytime you're looking at one view, if you see an arm coming towards you or an arm going away from you with the right lens, they look like it's the same. So if you don't have a top view, you won't know whether it was forward or backward pointing to your to you. So you then had to run the footage back and check it against the other view and check it yet against the third view. Uh, that's the way we did Sexy Robot. And so with this, we didn't quite have it broken down that way. So there's a lot of artistic interpretation to get what we got. But it was, you know, I, I always said that on Total Recall, I had plan A, plan B, and plan C. Plan A didn't work. That was pure motion capture. Plan B was this rotoscoping idea, which some of our material was film, some of our material was video, and it's how do you still frame video back then, because it's analog, and you have a, a jogger, and the jogger, when you stop the frame, it's doing this thing, I don't know if you remember what that looked like, but 
it was horrible. So what we did was we transferred the video to laser disc where you could have a clean, full image. And then we had to find a way to combine that image with the uh, overlay of the vector version of the you know computer animated version of the character. So film interfacing to uh, the CG characters so you could line them up properly. And you know nowadays you easily put running footage behind vectors and can match anything up and uh, do this. But the technology for that you know, came another couple of years after that, and you know it's, and now this is just like you know it's trivial to do what we had to do. But back then it was like you had all these towers of stone crossing a canyon and you had no bridge between them. There was no way to get you know there from from here. So anyway, I, I'm giving you a very long uh, how I got to Hollywood. Yeah, I was going to also just comment, you know, it's, it's crazy hearing the amount of effort it took for that scene, the x-ray scene, because I still get, uh, I still get really exhilarated of that scene, even, even years later. You know, I've, I've watched it like three times for the podcast. I still just, I get so stoked for that scene. It's just one of those, those penultimate scenes, right? So, I mean... All that work, well worth it, man, because it's classic. Well, it's great to hear you say that, but given all the technology advances since that time, it's a little, you know, if, if you look at Ray Harryhausen's stop motion animation, there was no such thing as go motion or motion blur during uh, movements of the armature because you, you had to move it and then shoot and move it and shoot and move it and shoot. Later, they figured out how to move between those positions in motion blur so you didn't have uh, the staccato feel to it. But that motion capture done that way uh, created a less smooth version than what we get today when we sample with you know the latest, greatest equipment. So I'm always a little queasy on that part. I'm glad it still exhilarates a, you know, a true fan like yourself. Uh, I don't mean it's not good. I just mean it was the best that could be done by anybody at the time and nobody else had another idea. And uh, it worked for the, for the film. But that was later done uh, for a movie called Toys by a performance done by the same guy who did the animation himself, actually wore the outfit and did the motion for the characters who he had on film. So he was imitating them. And then later in True Lies, Jim Cameron does a tribute to it by having uh, Tom Arnold and Arnold Schwarzenegger walk in on their way to the office every day. They're spies. They go into the spy place and every day they have to walk through and be you know, x-ray you know, scanned uh, as they enter. And that was, it. I don't know, it probably ran. We had 13... Uh, shots in two sequences and we had like nine humans and a dog and uh, then another four uh, guards who run in later so uh, that stuff was uh, you know again chisels and stone it was uh, it was not pretty it wasn't pretty it was time consuming and uh, it, 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 it took us like five months to do and uh we were thrilled when we saw it, uh, the first optical composite of it, because we couldn't scan film, you know, unless you were ILM at the time. They were the only ones with the, with the scanner and a film recorder until Kodak created the Cineon system and, 
1992, which was, you know, later, this was 1990, 89 and 90 that we were doing this. But uh, we would have loved to have done digital composite, but, you know, opticals was the way to go. I was very used to photochemical process, and that's how we were able to take the CG version of the skeleton and make it appear to be on that screen. And we had a match move, which I was used to doing with uh, vector graphic systems from all the commercials I had done previously uh, with Robert Abel. But uh, there's a little bit of a slide when we follow Arnold on one of the camera pans because uh, we didn't have lockdown markers on the screen that we would later digitally remove. And so it's a little imperfect there. But uh, it, uh, it was... The other interesting thing about that is that we received a company credit because that's all that could be negotiated at the time. Because, oh, you're only doing this one part of the movie. Yeah, the part that nobody's ever seen before, no one's ever figured out how to do before, the thing that we didn't even know we could complete for sure. Yeah, okay, don't give those guys credit. You know, but, you know, it was one of those things that uh, they didn't think it was, you know, quantity of work compared to what maybe some other vendors were doing. So that movie came to the theaters and well actually we saw a screening of it a cast and crew and when the credits went by we were like oh we don't have a credit this is Metro Light Studios you know a company credit which you know we wanted the company to be mentioned we just wanted our names there too but uh, when it ended up being Part of why the movie won an Academy Award, you know, it was the groundbreaking work, it was the amazing miniatures and motion control photography, it was all the optical work, it was all the, uh, the work that uh, Rob Bottin did with the creatures and the puppets and all that stuff. Uh, so, you know, it became part of, you know, what put it over the top along with all the excellent work in all those other departments. But, uh, you know, Later, for the video, we got a credit. And uh, I, I went on to start Sony Pictures Imageworks uh, after that. Sony kind of liked me a little for having won an Oscar for a TriStar picture. Um, so uh, I ended up running Sony Pictures Imageworks for the first four years. And really, we, we created an amazing company out of nothing. But uh, they surprised me, took me to the screening room to show me the film and have everybody from my... Uh, company uh, watch it. At the end, everybody goes, where's your name? I go, oh shit, that's right, this is the movie version. The movie version on negative doesn't have my name. They later on did digital titles for the video for the DVD. So it was like, yeah, I worked on it, but yeah, I don't have a credit. <laughs> and it only took you five months to make that scene, and your name's not on it. <laughs> uh, it gave our... Uh, company owner Jim Kristoff some gray hair during the time he's a quite a uh, an amazing guy and quite an amazing uh, businessman uh, and patient with us despite the fact that you know he kept saying when are you gonna be done <laughs> well when it's when it's good enough and he he hung in there with us uh, and let us keep going until we got it good enough and thank God you, you talked about you didn't just get the Oscar, you got the Special Achievement Award, which, in my understanding, is a unanimous decision that's announced before the ceremony. That's correct. It was so unanimous that they were like, we, we're giving it to them, we're announcing it now, which is huge. But at the time, you're doing all these new things. You're pushing the envelope. The technology is in its infancy, Did you, and you're innovating. At the time, 
now it's now you can look back and say I've got the statue, but at the time is it oh we're innovating, this is awesome when you're in the moment, or is if this doesn't work, this is our career. That's right. Hell yeah. What are we gonna do if we don't deliver? Oh my god. You know, they can't have a hole in the the whole thing was there was no other way to do it. Because if you were to use a skeleton and rod puppet it so that you could animate it, even if you could rod puppet and animate it well enough to match the humans, if you tried to make, you would only have a photographic version of that. You wouldn't be able to uh, make an x-ray version of those bones because in 3D also, it would be 2D if anything. And it would be like those little cutout, you know, uh, swivel joint, uh, skeletons that we've all seen for Halloween. You know, there was no way to make it look marbled, uh, and it had to be opaque at the edges and transparent at the center because that's how an X-ray goes through a bone. You know, it's the grazing angle uh, of the tops and the you know the bottom of the bone that makes the image, and you kind of see through the front because that's just one pass. And then it had to be marbled with the veining that bones develop. And, you know, I actually, <laughs> I almost really bit one off. Luckily, Paul didn't, Paul Verhoeven didn't. I wanted to do the muscle mass. I wanted Arnold's, because, you know, when you look at Arnold's skeleton, you look and go, you know, he's a tall guy. He's 6'2", six, 6'3", six, something like that. But his skeleton doesn't look any bigger than everybody else's. He's taller, but, he, you know, he's not like he's got the extra big bones. You know, he's got the same, he's got bones, you know, that are proportionate. So I wanted to put the muscle mass around it. And we had done a test where we had it barely working at all. And this is way before their skin and way before their spine surfaces and all that stuff. And I showed it to Paul Verhoeven as a test, kind of like, I don't know what I thought was going to happen if we had to deliver that for the movie. But he saw it and he just thought, you know, no, I really love the idea of the graphic image of an X-ray uh, for this, and then you know the red, you know, alarm uh, image uh, rings and the gun itself. He liked that graphic idea, and nobody had ever seen it before. And he was absolutely right. There's no reason to go beyond that. And of course, we would probably died on our swords uh, after failing to deliver that thing. So. Uh, uh, I, I, you know, sometimes you <laughs> are your own worst enemy. And luckily he kept me from screwing that one up. Speaking of Paul Verhoeven, um, absolutely. So if it tells you anything, our very first episode was about RoboCop, you know, and then Total Rico. Yeah, we're in you and Rob Bottin was huge on that, correct? Yeah, Rob, Rob did an amazing job on that. Uh, that. That's such an amazing movie. I mean, it's violent as hell, as is Total Recall. And by today's standards, it's a bit. But, you know, it's of the time. Uh, you know, movies were also much more R-rated that time. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that aren't the same as they were back then. Um, but uh, that's an incredible movie. And his editor, Frank Urosti, uh, was the same editor on Robocop as on Total Recall. And he's a fantastic guy. And I remember spending time with him in the cutting room with uh, Paul. And, uh, yeah, they made a beautiful movie, uh, an amazing movie. And... Um, it it, it 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 it's something. It, it's one of the ones that that survives till today for sure. And I, I brought that up to say, you know, Paul Verhoeven talks about a, being being someone that didn't really appreciate sci-fi. You know, when he came over from the states, he kept getting sci-fi films, even though he really wasn't 
a huge fan of them. You know, he didn't read, I don't think he had read a lot of Philip K. Dick. And so his goal, he says, was always to find the humanity in these films, you know, with Robocop and especially Total Recall, finding the humanity, even though Arnold is this giant person, um, you know, this giant bigger than life guy. For you, what was it like working with Paul Verhoeven, given that context that he's not a tradi- traditional sci-fi fan? He was amazing. Um, he had a reputation for having a, um, you know, a temper on set. But, you know, back in those days, a $100,000 a day film crew was a lot of pressure. Movies were $60 million movies, not $100 million, not $300 million. And, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure on a director and the hours they get to sleep and things like that. You know, Jim Cameron has been known to be a little touchy at times when he's got so many things going. He's got helicopters with, and, you know, he's got... Uh, IMO cameras everywhere. He's got, you know, everything's got to happen for the take perfectly. And uh, there's so much technology involved, so much uh, preparation and things that can go wrong that uh, it's amazing they can hold it together with, with all that and produce the most amazing films that we get from that. So uh, Paul was always amazingly wonderful to me. And uh, I was pretty naive. That was my second movie, but the first that I'm sitting here with a Hollywood director who's you know made Robocop already, and uh, and I'm doing work that's groundbreaking. Which you know at the time we're not going like, oh wow, this is groundbreaking. Yeah. What is it like when you go from? You know, maybe a meek Jeff Bridges. I think uh, Richard Dreyfus was mentioned to Arnold. You know, does does that just change the way you tell the story? Or well, you know, Arnold was a phenomenon of the time. The, we he is the closest thing to a John Wayne, Cary Grant, uh, John. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, all those other guys who we don't have anymore. We don't have people that last that long in their careers as top. Uh, uh, actors. I mean, anything he was in had to be pretty good to get him on it. And whatever he would, you know, Jim Cameron used him perfectly always. You know, Paul definitely did in the case of this film. And, uh, you know, Arnold performed masterfully uh, in all these things. And uh, he had the range, he had the humor. He didn't take himself too seriously, luckily. You know, he was a pretty regular guy. I, I'm not sure if I told you the story about we were on the set the first time and uh, we were calibrating the motion capture stage and he walked over and he was smoking a cigar and he looked at the whole thing and he's like, you know, what are you guys doing? I said, well, you know, this is for the motion capture for the x-ray sequence. And he said, oh, and I said, well, you know, he's standing on the stage where there's these two big, these four big posts that are the, supposed to be the height of the field that we're able to capture. And I said, well, actually, Arnold, I mean, would you mind terribly if we, you know, test the calibration? I need to put this sensor on your head. And here we are holding a tennis ball that's all retroreflective. And I go to put it up, and he looks at me. He's got a cigar, and he leans over, and, and I place it on his head, and he stands up. He says, now walk around. He's looking at us like, all right, you guys are definitely screwing with me. This is not... This is not something, you know, that happens on a set. But he goes along with it, and he walks up and down, and he goes, yeah, okay, he's going to fit, you know, the calibration will work. Okay, thank you, Arnold, and he bends down, and we take the ball off his head, and he's, he looks back at us one more time with a cigar, and, uh, you know, he was expecting maybe a prank was being pulled on him, but, you know, he cooperated completely, and he's, he, he's a marvelous guy. I, I ran into him another time during... Um, 
what's the one in the city where he's a detective? God, I can't think of not not. I worked on Last Action Hero, but this was another one. Um, after that, anyway, I met him uh, at a cigar, a place where they you can put keep your cigars uh, so that they're kept properly. And Arnold had an account there, and he happened to come in there. It wasn't that I was hanging at that place. I was hanging at a place that was next to that. And he went in, and he was smoking a cigar and sitting at a table while they were shooting that with Peter Hyams. But anyway, uh, great, uh, great actor. And, yeah, there there aren't many people like him. You know, Clint Eastwood is, is a different version of that to some degree in that he's become a director and a filmmaker and uh, as well as... Uh, being an actor in amazing movies that made a difference. But, uh, yeah, Arnold was a phenomenon, and uh, he was exactly the right guy for the movie. He, in True Lies, he's brilliant. I mean, it's, it's again, it's another guy who's kind of that guy with somebody else. So, anyway, I, yeah, it, it, it's funny because those other people were more the thinking, uh, emotional, you know, Spielberg pushing to the big close-up to, to watch the expression change on his face, you know, to show what he's thinking. And Arnold is, you know, he can do enough of that to carry it, but he also has all the physicality and all the, you know, the, 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 the ability to pull off the humor. So, Tim, when you look back at your career, both, you know, present and past, what are some things in your mind that have just changed film? Kind of like some oh shit moments like this is going to change film forever. Well, actually, one of the, the big ones, which nobody even thinks about anymore, is digital compositing. Scanning and uh, putting out the film or putting out the digital now, which doesn't even go back to film uh, necessarily. Uh, that changed a whole level of reality. We used to have to make a dupe of a dupe to have another negative to work with. And that would be a, a considered uh, a generation. And then to make the whole movie, they'd make a dupe of that negative into an inner positive and then into an inner negative and then make prints off of that. And so sometimes it'd be four generations or they, they'd call those two because they're a half step each kind of. But it was lowering the quality. It was uh, making it more contrasty. You know, they, they did a lot to avoid that with the lab. However, it was another generation. And with digital, there is no other generation. You shoot it digitally to start with now. You don't even start with film to scan it, uh, unless you're Christopher Nolan and you're doing, and you insist on doing IMAX film uh, and uh, 70 millimeter for everything else. But anyway, we start digitally. We have more color range than film. Uh, well, we have at least as much, if not more. And it never goes away now. It used to go away in the process. So digital compositing allows us to remove things that shouldn't be there and put it back like this. Like I was saying in Total Recall with a panning shot of the screen with no skeletons on it, you would normally put markers on there so that you could tell where you were so you could get a perfect match move because you could digitally remove them and make it look like they were never there. We couldn't do that on the one with Arnold because there would be tape on there and we couldn't get rid of it. So we had to estimate where, you know, how fast the camera was moving over that. And it's, you know, it's not perfect. It was good for the time. So anyway, digital compositing, be able to scan, be able to start digital, be able to scan, uh, work digitally the whole way, never lose. We, we work in 16 billion colors or more. 
We used to talk about 24-bit, which was 16.4 million colors. We're at like 60 billion colors or beyond because now we're uh, floating point instead of even um, uh, integer math. You know, uh, when we're talking 16 and 60 billion, we're talking integer math. Now it's floating point infinite, you know. So nothing, everything is always there throughout the whole process as if we just filmed it live for the first time. And so anyway, that and everything that that, every freedom that brings with it uh, was huge. Uh, now we take it for granted because nobody even knows that it was like that before. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the other thing was being able to capture on set the lighting that was really there and the set itself to be able to use that to light the computer graphic thing that is supposed to be there at the same time when you're filming, except for it's getting done in post because it wasn't even designed yet. It was designed, but they didn't have it really ready. And uh, if you measured all the lights, you know, where they were, how intense they were, what color uh, filters and interference things were put in front of them to soften them or focus them or widen them, if you took all that information down and you wrote extensively for every shot, you still had no correlation in the software as to what those things were. You would say, okay, now, now that I wrote all this down, there's a pretty bright light over there. And there's a very kind of a blue one over there and kind of an orange one. And it, it, there wasn't a place in the software to plug that in. With a chrome sphere, it doesn't matter what it is. It just is. It's every exposure between black and white of everything in the shot, everything that lit the shot. So if there's a shadow under a table, what color is it? Is there a red wall that's bouncing some light back into it that makes it more reddish? If we got a cyan shadow when it should be a red shadow, our stuff's not going to match. That is in the chrome sphere, every, every bit of that. So then if we take the imagery around the set and we use that to light the character with as well. I mean, the chromosphere kind of does that, but some of the time with the chromosphere is capturing movie making stuff. You know, hey, that's a crane. It's orange. <laughs> hey, that's a blue screen back there. We're, we're going to replace that with something, but in this, you know, chromosphere, it's blue. So get rid of the blue. We don't want to kick all that blue into it. So, you know, the, the ability to uh, light with an image. Uh, or footage or anything else in addition to the chrome sphere that has every light where it was that was artificial makes our CG look real. It makes that character look like it was there at the same time. So that was huge. And Matrix was right around the time that that um, uh, research, uh, Paul DeBevick is one of the major sources of this along with, uh, and getting it in the production was a bunch of, you know, geeky, um, you know, software guys who went, Oh, you know, I, I'll implement it this way. So you can use it. You know, it's a great theory and here's some great test shots, but you know, let's put it in the software. And, you know, Paul was very instrumental in making those tools more easy for uh, visual effects companies, but, you know, Mannix, the company who was responsible for the visual effects on the first, you know, on the matrix films, uh, use the latest, greatest, and it was the only way to do what they, they, they needed to do was recreate the subway uh, platform 
for the fight because they put these cameras around and captured the 360 degree roll around them and they get in the way of the subway. It doesn't look like a subway with all those cameras sitting there. So you got to remove the cameras and you got to put them in the environment that was there and the shots that you can shoot where they actually are in the subway have plenty of other shots where they're not because they're on a green screen stage and, you know, several days later shooting with this big uh, uh, time uh, slice um rig and so you need to be able to put the scene back together again looking like you're actually there when you're not and so the ability to capture all that stuff at high resolution at the right color depth and to be able to make uh, that set from it and have it give off the same light and shadow as was in the original so that it looks like that's what's causing the lighting on those actors who are really with another way so that was another big thing then that was, you know, like 2000, 2001. Uh, you know, then Golem and the motion capture technology that uh, Weta used to create Golem and put him in as one of the major characters running throughout the film. And then you, you, you go, you know, five to ten years later and they're doing Planet of the Apes movies where the movie is about the ape. And about all the ape friends and about, you know, the gang of apes and, the, you know, the, the whole tribe of apes. And every one of those is an actor being motion captured both for his uh, body motion and then they do facial capture as well. And they can shoot this motion capture on set now with rain and with snow and with <coughs> gray weather and still get what they need. I mean, these are advances. It used to be it had to be rarefied, you know, studio setting. To get this stuff properly. <clears throat> so to go from, gee, I can get a skeleton walking through uh, an x-ray to I can do a performance close up on the face of these characters and they can move me with their performance is, is you know, going light years in, you know, 10, 20 years. So those were amazing things. And then <clears throat> taking the chrome sphere and the uh, stills from the set to light the scene with to another whole level is the LED volumes that people are using now. The ability to surround your, your actors with the right shaped LED screens, you can put the imagery that was later going to get put there with blue screen or green screen, you can put it there when you shoot them. Then any mask that's shiny that they're wearing, any piece of shiny fabric, uh, armor, you know, whatever is going to reflect what was really would have been there had the visual effects been done in advance. So it, it actually flips the schedule around. So everything has to be designed and built and rendered uh, in in first man. You know, we lit the lunar landing module with the moon. They were landing on it. They they lit on they they landed on the side that was lit up. The lit up side of the moon was coming through the windows of their lunar landing module. And when they're sitting with a pane of glass between them and the moon, wearing their space helmet, which is curved, glass, thick, it reflects and refracts that image out the window, as well as that light is bouncing around inside the capsule and lighting the whole thing up. And you may have, you know, some lights on the, uh, you know, the, the panels that are the instrumentation and things. Uh, and those are lit and real and in the actual set piece, but all the rest of the light is what would have been there if you were sitting in the capsule with Neil Armstrong and, and Buzz. So 
so anyway, it, it's it, that is now putting production in reverse where everything has to be done first uh, so it can be uh, ready for set, at least design. And now the other big change, which is really the uh, speed uh, in technology, you know, how fast processors are going from CPUs to GPUs. GPUs are graphics processors that can do images in real time because they're built a different way completely. They, they think different. They can give you 60 frames per second at you know 2K or 4K or 8K, depending on the design of them. And so you have the ability to feed the environment to the screen, and then any way that you see that environment with actors in front of it from any position of the camera, it can show you on the screen, not because you moved over, because the pers- it's reading the camera and giving the playback visible, you know, needed to be visible for the camera to be over there. It's seeing around that other set piece. It's seeing deeper into uh, the scene. And the parallax that should be happening there doesn't have to be faked or put in later. There's no camera tracking that has to be done uh, in roto and all these other things to put people in the right place. It's just being filmed that way. So uh, that is how The Mandalorian is done. That is how uh, First Man was done. Everybody who did the you know the work in uh, you know Jungle Book and Lion King and things like that. John Favreau is using this well. In Mandalorian, but uh, Jim Cameron used this kind of thing, virtual production, for the first Avatar film. And what he's taking it to for two, three, four, and five is ridiculous. I mean, he's 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 going to break new ground. I think I I I've said before that he these guys now these filmmakers now get this technology that it's just like. They used to say, you know, I need an anamorphic show. I need this film stock. I need my sets made this way or whatever. I need this aspect ratio. They knew their craft and now they know our craft because they need our craft because it's really all those other crafts put together, but from another technology standpoint. So that's, uh, it's all come together to where, I mean, they still need experts. They still need people who know how that stuff works underneath so that when something's not working or something needs to be advanced even further than what it was, they can get that thing to happen. But the directors, you know, the Jim Camerons and the Christopher Nolans and the John Favreau's know this stuff and can use it like it's the film language they've always been working with. It's probably increased collaboration between screenplay adapters and, and visual effects and the directors and the producers, right? Because it used to, and you and I were talking about the budgets and how, you know, you were the 19th, 20 line item starting, you know, Tron Total Recall. Now in a modern setting, you were over, maybe sometimes over half the budget. Now, does it does that mean that when you're writing a screenplay, adapting a screenplay, you know, doing the storyboard, are they, is there more like collaboration on the forefront? Because it, it feels like it used to be, you know, we'll bring in visual effects when we're ready for it. But now it's such a big part of the story. Like you mentioned with Gollum, all of a sudden we're being moved by a digital rendering, a digital character. Is that creating more collaboration on the front end than it used to? Well, uh, I think those writers are paying attention to what's going on. It's just that you always, in a screenplay, have to say what is happening, but you don't say how it looks and you don't give great 
information about every detail about that stuff. And if you do put that in, the studio won't read your screenplay because of those boring stuff. Yeah, just give me the... Some people say the studio only reads the dialogue as they go through. Mm. You know, they don't even bother with the description in okay. the scene headings and all that stuff. Now, you know, I don't, you know that, that might be a hard thing to say, like all, you know, Irish people are this way or all Polish people that way or whatever. <laughs> you know, it may be silly like that. But the main thing is that, uh, you know, it's the director who says how we're going to see it. This is what the story is, but this is how we're going to show that part of it. And if it's, uh, you know, inside this guy's head, what are we, what memory are we showing? What flashback are we doing? What, you know, way are we telling the audience that this is in his head or that he's actually somewhere else that we've never seen? And we've got the best production designers on it. And we've got the best visual effects people visualizing, bringing those things, you know, to a, a concrete uh image that can be you know in the in the led volume or later in post put into the blue screen area but uh collaboration certainly uh in the pre-production phase has always been there but it was called pre-production and you did it for a couple of months before you do the shoot and it was primarily prep for the shoot and now there's so much prep for the volumes and things that you might spend nine months you know, designing a whole environment that's going to be, you know, the the, the stuff that you're going to have for Dune or for the Matrix or for, uh, you know, any of these uh, broad Vista films. Uh, the environments, uh, you can go to Jordan and shoot, you know, real uh, dunes and, uh, you know, rock, you know, sculpted rocks that have been weathered by, you know, winds for centuries, millennium. Uh, however, you can't find enough of it to go infinitely over it in a, in, in a you know, flying device. <clears throat> and so someone's got to make that stuff up and make it look like that other, you know, make it look like the real stuff so that you buy it, that we're not just in Jordan and we ran out of desert. <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, I've seen this part before. You know, it's like, no, uh, it, it can be this other planet completely where they're harvesting spice. You know, it, it, it can be different. It can be like and it can be different in as many ways as you want to determine and then you can build a hell environment and then have that ready for the shot when you shoot it that's incredible you know we've talked about james cameron you call him jim because you you've worked with him i'll, I'll keep calling him james well it's not like we have dinner all the time and we're talking on the phone all the time i mean i've worked with jim and we've talked yeah. about working many times we almost worked on a thing that he wanted to do called burning chrome and it was a william gibson short story Oh, wow. And uh, that was his first cyber anything that he wanted to do. And he couldn't do it because he got tied up in Pericle Pictures. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, bankruptcy. Oh, the bank. Oh, the bankruptcy. In the bankruptcy. So that got tied up. However, he managed to get the sequel rights to the Terminator movies out of there at some point in time. And that's how he was eventually able to take control of that franchise again after it had sort of technically squirted out of his hand from that. And uh, anyway, uh, I forgot your original question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were talking. Well, I cracked a stupid joke. But I, I can only call him James, but um, oh you know, god, I'll find that one. Okay, if I ever meet him, then I'll say, "Hey, can I call you Jim?" Um, but uh, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, you can't talk about the things we're talking about without talking about James Cameron, someone who has just moved the ball 
so far with innovation. But one thing he, we covered Terminator 2, which is, you know, an all time favorite of mine. We all know how I feel about Arnold Schwarzenegger. I, I love that. Oh, it's probably, it still holds up so well when I watch it. I'm like, this still looks modern to me. Um, just as a, as a, not an auteur, as a fan, but, you know, one thing he said in the special features, um, talking about, um, about making, you know, the liquid metal man and, you know, Robert Patrick's character was, you know, it's not that the technology wasn't always available. It's that it's, yes, it was in its infancy, but it's also about storytelling. You can't just throw CGI into a movie and that means it's good. You can't just start using effects. You still have to know lighting. You still have to know how to tell a story. You still have to know the 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 basics of filmmaking to make that CGI look good, to make it make sense. Um, what do you think about that quote? And how does that hit you seeing as that's been your career is, is that part of storytelling? Well, we, we've got the visionaries like Jim uh, who, who led us to where we are and made us want to create tools to make those things better. I mean, when he wanted to do a water tentacle that was going to come through the submarine in the abyss and reflect everything in that environment, that was pretty new uh, to have anything work like that at all. And it was like a science project you know, to, to R&D it and, and get it to happen. And, and, it, and it did happen. But, you know, that you know, then became the genesis of, oh, I can reflect stuff. You know, way back, one of the first uh, films done with CG at all was uh, Last Star, not, not Last Starfighter, the uh, Flight of the Navigator. Flight of the Navigator has a chrome-shaped uh, uh, spaceship that actually morphs its shape, which we could do at that time. So, hey, we can do that. You know, back then we could only do a couple of things that anybody would want in the movie. But if we rendered it with lighting, we just said, oh, what's that CG looking thing in there? It, it looks wrong. Well, the fact that we, we could reflection map very early on, uh, when they said we would have to reflection map things that we would create in CG anyway in order to reflect it, because we couldn't get images in and out of the computer yet. Once they could scan anything at all, and reflect that in the CG thing. It looked real because it was reflecting its environment. And so Jim, with the water tentacle, saw that he could refract and reflect. And in the case of Chrome Man, he went, oh, well, I can do a water tentacle. I can do a Chrome Man. And he'll look right, even if I can't, even if CG isn't up to doing a daytime CG man walking around, I can do a daytime CG Chrome guy walking around. So he was right at the edge of what worked. And getting him to walk right with pants and all that other stuff was a little tricky than making robots walk, which is something I did a long time ago with Sexy Robot. Uh, But getting convincing human motion uh, was getting better and better by that time. And uh, he he saw the technology. But what you said about uh, it isn't just the effects, because, yeah, if it was just the effects, you wouldn't be drawing billion and multi-billion dollar uh, box offices. You know, it's only because the ideas for the story are as mind-blowing or more than the effects, and the effects are just telling the story the way the director wants to tell that story. Anybody can take a script and make something from it, but to make something that everybody watches and to make something that so many people want to watch that, you know, the, the, the numbers start clicking in in the billions... That is masterful. That is expert. That is, you know, top one, two, three percent, whatever of the the people who uh, can work like that. And by them doing it, they bring everybody up. 
because everybody goes, oh, you know, I understand that part. I understand that part. And they all, everybody's game improves. All the other directors improve uh, until they get a shot. And then, of course, if they get a shot and they do well, they keep going. But I, 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 I can't think that anybody who's, you know, had a shot and not really, uh, well, there's been some very good movies that have been done expertly and they haven't done well for God knows what reason. I mean, I, I probably shouldn't list them because <laughs> I don't want to give anybody a black eye. But, you know, there's some movies that were uh, phenomenal. OK, I, I'm going to mention one because Bat- Battle Angel Alita is spectacular. Yet it, it didn't do big business and it couldn't have been done better. Mm. And it's a great story. And uh, the character is real. And yet she's, you know, a manga character also and does stuff uh, phenomenally, uh, uh, but in the real world, not in just the manga world anymore, because in the manga world, you know, it's all, you know, cartoon-ish looking. Uh, I don't mean to belittle manga, but I mean, it is a form of cartoon in a way. And this stuff was done real to your eye, but telling a story like that, you know, things like that, uh, you know, uh, the... Planet of the Apes movies did really well, are amazing stories, but never won an Oscar. Not a single one of those won an Oscar. And the stories they told, the the uh, emotion those characters had, the uh, way it was put across, the way it was filmed, the way it was you know, done in visual effects, you go, I don't know why that didn't work, but it, it didn't grab the heart of the audience enough. And, you know, Jim Cameron always does. Chris Nolan always does. Uh, so that's the magic. The magic is the guy. And the magic is how, what kind of stories he decides to tell and how he wants to show the audience that story unreeling. I'm, I'm, I'm and we get to do stuff uh, that they imagine and we give them more options than they've ever had before. And then they push it. And so that's, uh, you know, that's, you need those guys, you know, every team has got to have, you know, uh, you know, captain coach, every army needs a general or, you know, a, uh, chief of, of, you know, a whole staff of generals, but someone's in charge of how you take Normandy, uh, and, or how you invade, uh, Europe anyway. And, uh, that brain, uh, in, and in the case of the ones who are both writers and directors, I mean, most top, top, top directors will at least, you know, give notes on the script, will maybe do a rewrite with a writer to make it, you know, more the way they see it. But to come up with a story from scratch mm. and to knock it out of the park every single time, you know, that's. That's really genius. And, you know, we love to be in the ranks uh, of the people making that imagery for that director because uh, it it feels great. And, uh, you know, you're appreciated on some level. And, uh, you know, the imagery stands, you know, forever. You know, I don't know. (laughs) We don't know how we're going to preserve digital imagery for eternity because if the drive that it's on goes away before we have it backed up, you know, we're kind of screwed. But, uh, nobody knows how we're going to back up all this data and have it continuously uh, there for when, you know, 3,000 years from now, they're, they're digging down and brushing the dust off the, the stone 
uh, canisters or whatever, and they go, oh, there's a movie. I don't know what to do with it. It's a bunch of data. We don't have anything reason to drive like this anymore, a tape like this or, or whatever. But boy, I bet they had some cool things. <laughs> We'll never know. That you know unless we, a good movie in and of itself. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lost access. Yeah, what the, the, of hey, a, we found the Academy Archives. There we go. But yeah. we don't know what's on it. <laughs> We're holograms now. Our whole life is a movie. What are these things? What is this? What, who's this Arnold guy? What is the deal here? You know? Yeah. How can we keep seeing this guy? <laughs> what? Why do they like him so much? We don't know what he's doing, what he's saying. So, you know, yeah. what's that about? Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. The, the, uh, the stuff we're doing, we hope it doesn't, you know, go into the thin air, you know, after we make it. But I, I used to say it'll live forever on video. And then I learned about this problem of data archival. And I was like, oh, well, I know that it'll live for 10, 20 years anyway. And I'm, I, I, I want to make as many films as I can that people say, now that's a movie I remember. And, I, and I've been lucky on that. You know, Total Recall, I was lucky on. Uh, there's a movie I worked on called The Ghost in the Darkness, oh, yeah. which, uh, which is a true, based on a true story. And nobody saw it at the box office. It came out and made $40, $50 million, something like that, which you know, even back in the mid late 90s was not much money for an effort as big as that. And there's some great stars in it. And there's great, you know, uh, Michael Douglas and Doug Kilmer are the you know, lead uh, characters. And uh, everybody in supporting was, was top, top, top people. Uh, production design locations were amazing. The lions that we got were amazing. And what we got them to do with the tra trainers who were just ingenious to help us, you know, do what had to be done for the camera. Uh, and so anyway, uh, I find people coming up to me when I say I worked on that. Oh, I, you know, I saw that in video or I saw it on, you know, on, uh, online somewhere, but, uh, they knew the film and they, they liked it. So I, I love having, being part of that and ma making, and, and actually that one's written by William Goldman of all people, who's one of the top screenwriters of all time. Uh, so anyway, and, and Stephen Hopkins was the director and, and he was amazing. Uh, he, he knew exactly what to do with that film. So anyway, uh, sorry, you, you probably might have other questions about other films. That's great. I just, I just want to point out getting Douglas and Val Kilmer on the same screen is, is incredible. <laughs> that is just, if you told me today that like, Hey Kyle, I'm working on a movie and Douglas and Val Kilmer are going to be, and I'm like, here's my money. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> yeah, they're big stars. And, uh, you know, Michael Douglas was a producer in the film as well. And he's actually an amazing producer and he's an amazing actor. And when he comes on set, everybody snaps too. You know, it's like, this guy knows how it gets done. Don't be screwing around. Don't be in your trailer too long. Don't be any of this other nonsense. This is a business. Be professional. You know, it, it's like, uh, I always remember there was a line that was supposed to be Sir Lawrence Olivier saying to um, um, God, uh, Dustin Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman is a method actor. And he went up to, uh, to Lawrence and said, you know, how are you preparing you know, to, to, to go out there and do your shot? He says, I just step out there and I act, dear man, you know, something like that. It's just like, yeah, it, I don't have anything like that. I just do it. It's me. It's how I do it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's how the best are. 
I mean, I'm not saying I'm not knocking anybody with method acting. However, they get the characters on the screen. They get on the Dustin Hoffman's done a million amazing characters. So it's not like, oh, he's not so talented. <laughs> you know, he is. He just doesn't go about it in the same way. But, uh, you know, that that's, I just go out there and act here, man. <laughs> that's amazing. And it's funny you say that about Douglas as a producer, because as a, as a character, anytime he plays a character, his characters have the same impact. Like it, it really... Oh. Gordon Gecko, right? I mean, how do you not just when he's on screen, you're just like, you know, he's so he's this his characters do the same thing as his what you're saying his personality is like as a producer. Yeah, yeah. He he's a whole other level of professionalism and talent. And you know, he comes from you know, Kirk Douglas. You know, Kirk Douglas is his father, and Kirk was an amazing actor. I mean, they're so different. Mm-hmm. They're both, you know, amazingly good looking into their later years, even no matter what. Uh, they're both, you know, top of the game top magnets at the box office and uh they're they're different in many ways too but uh working with him was a real honor and uh i i I really uh, respect him immensely um i i I was in new york for a while and i thought you know if if i had a chance i I would love to, to talk to uh talk to him because on set i got to talk to him and you know a couple of times about you know the visual effects specifically but uh, you know, now in, in after all this time, I, I would love to have a chance to talk to Michael Douglas again. Um, just an amazing guy, an amazing presence, and amazing talent. Yeah. Closing out last, you know, and you've alluded to to Nolan a lot, and um, you talk about you know that top one, two, three percent of directors knocking out of the park. Um, you know, it's interesting. I've always been a Nolan fan. Uh, even going back to uh, following, I believe was it? Fo- yeah, I was following his first. Bl- it was a black and white film, and I, always, I was just kind of this, just kind of fan. And and I would say I have an above average appreciation for directors, right? But Nolan, oh yeah, we did Inception versus The Matrix, and one thing I found is that even for the casual fan, Nolan has really accrued a dedicated fan base as a director above average in terms of people that just like to see movies. Like they know that this is a Nolan film. And uh, I want to pair that with, you talked about, you know, I feel like him and James Cameron, although both in that top 3% are so different because what I learned through studying for the Inception podcast was that um, no one wants one camera. He, if he doesn't have to use multi-angle camera, he won't. I think the only reason he did it on Dark Knight was because they were crashing that semi, and the studio was like, "We're not going to take a risk investing millions in this. Do <laughs> not capture it. So we're going to make you do two cameras." Um, and then the scene where they're at the Paris Cafe, and that explosion is real behind them. Um, and one thing that he he did to get around. Paris has very strict uh, film guidelines, apparently, and they didn't want real fire on set. So they used pressurized nitrogen, I think. And, mm. and stuff is really exploding behind Leonardo DiCaprio. Like that stuff is actually, and Elliot Page, that stuff is just blowing up. Um, so he, he's, he wants everything to be real and surreal. So for you, when you worked with him on Dunkirk, A, what was it like working with him? But B, you know, going from a James Cameron type of filmmaking where, you know, we're going to, you know, include this in the storytelling to a guy that wants to be as realistic and minimal effects as possible. What was that like for you? Well, it was, you know, he, he is a purist of film, you know, to be to a level that, uh, you know, you, you would say all those top guys really are, but he takes it to an even higher level. Uh, and he technically 
I think I might have said hate before. He technically doesn't like the technology and uh, CG. And he loves, he falls in love with an image that he makes, even if it's imperfect at the edges. You know, there's flair that can happen at the edge of, especially an IMAX piece of film. is a huge piece of film going through a gate. You know, you think about 35 millimeter, if anybody ever shot slides when they were, you know, uh, when that was the way to shoot vacation pictures, that's double the size of a 35 millimeter motion picture frame. And then you take IMAX, which is like 50 times that. And so there's a lot of that dynamics to the to the wrapping of the film as it goes through the camera, even and you know little things happen to it. And he he loves all that stuff. He loves the imperfections. Uh, he loves anything shot through a lens that you know may have a quality that's a little you know affected because that's a movie and that's film. And you know we would get an element from him. Of a, of a dive bomber, a Stuka, I think it was called. Uh, and we would have the CG one. And go, well, you know, the one you had this, and it went down in this way. And, you know, we can change the timing of that, of course, with by still using the footage. Or we could use the CG one, which we have, you know, the chrome sphere for that day when it was shot. And, you know, we know where the camera was and all this other stuff uh, because we're able to camera track it. And uh, he would look at, the one that you would think was the one that would tell the story exactly the way you would have liked it. If you knew when you were shooting that stuka, what you wanted it to do exactly. And he preferred a stuka on film. He would always prefer the real thing. He, he would never quite like the CG one of it. So, you know, obviously to do inception, there was no way not to go with stuff you couldn't shoot. And so whenever he's in that spot in an interstellar, okay, Let's go out and film the black hole and let's get really close with the ship. It's like, well, okay, that ain't going to happen. We, we, we haven't even had an image through a, through a telescope of a black hole. So I guess you're, you know, Chris, I'm sorry, we can't afford the mission to the black hole to shoot. I mean, you know, he's no idiot. Of course he knows that. But it's just that if he could have shot a reel, he would have. <laughs> he would have shot the black hole reel. Um, so in Dunkirk, there's all kinds of things that, you know, a lot of what looks so great in there is that he made, uh, partial models of the ships that are sinking and are, uh, you know, have been, uh, destroyed and, you know, guys, guys that were not jumping off them because the one where they're actually sinking and jumping and it's burning, that is actually a CG one with digi double people jumping off of it. So in a movie where almost every ship is a set piece on hydraulics in a tank, we're making the tank look like it's the middle of the ocean. We're making the actors floating in the water with the life jackets, you know, in that look like they're really that horizon to infinity and that there's water that matches up to their water that goes every which way and, and making that flawless at six and you know, eight K because that's what IMAX resolution is. But he built these damn things and made them sink and made people stand on them and made them burn and made, you know, shoot it at night and all that other stuff because that's how we wanted to shoot it. And that looks more real, even if you say, but it's in a tank, it's still your backlog. But yeah. if you do it the right way and then you have the assist of, you know, digital visual effects, 
You never catch that. You never get any hint that you're not in the middle of the damn ocean at night with the burning and these people jumping into the water and not knowing what the hell is going to happen to them. Uh, you know, that is, there are so many scenes we did where what the light was doing to the lens, what the water did when it slapped over the lens and went back off, and then you saw the image through that distortion. The frames, I kept going through the frames because people had to do some cleanup or some addition of some element. And I would just look and I go, this frame is art. Yeah. This image is so original and there will never be this image in another situation ever again. The way the light is refracting, the color of the light, where it is, the water reflecting everything and the way it's flashing, it would make every image would be unique. And then like every, I don't know, you know, 20th every 50th would be like oh my god i've never seen anything beautiful this is one frame and this goes by at 24 you know a second in imax uh but the imagery he is capturing is gorgeous Mm. it actually individually is so anyway i i don't remember gushing over a frame as much as i have you know because i you know we're reviewing this stuff at you know 8k and it takes a little while to play back a sequence that is, you know, two, 300 frames long, maybe 500 frames at 8K. So, and reviewing the work and looking to see, okay, well, we got to fix this frame, but we, you're good with this one. Why don't you take something from here and put it over there? But, oh my God, this frame, <laughs> I'm in love. You know, it's a beautiful piece of art. That's so incredible. anyway, that's, his frames were like that. Wow. And uh, Frames of art. Yeah. Incredible. And uh, there are moments in time, split seconds that uh, fly by us and they they make emotional impacts on our brain. You know, they're translated through our eye to our brain and uh, they move us in ways that we're not even aware of unless you can sit at a workstation, <laughs> look at a frame long enough to go, oh my God, that's, that's beautiful. Wow. You know, and he he's the weirdest marriage of, and I say weird in a good way, of minimalism with effects and with filming, like you said, go, he wants it to be traditional, but he's married that with the most complex and tenacious ideas. Um, and he must be brilliant because one of the things I found out when studying for the inception podcast was I'd seen inception inception several times. And I thought, surely this guy has some kind of degree in psychology or dreams. He did zero research for that movie. He, he claims that he didn't read any books um, that it was all based on his personal experience and in his own mind. And I'm just like, that's even a, that's even better. I, that kind of, that's kind of cool. But B it's like, who is this guy? I mean, he's, he's a minimalist with film, but he's this tenacious storyteller. And when you marry those things, it's exactly what you're talking about. You get these frames of art, um, you know, and all these things, it just blows my mind. Yeah. If again, uh, not to take away from directors who direct and writers who write, but directors who write and who create stories that are mind boggling, uh, you know, that's a rare thing. And uh, those people, you know, and again, it takes it even with the general of that army being, you know, brilliant, you know, it does take an army to make the movie, but when they're following that, you know, general into war uh, of, of production, uh, they're all inspired, you know, they're all ready to do anything they can to enable him to get his vision on film. And, uh, you know, it, it's the difference between, you know, uh, 
you know, signing up for the, the school band, <laughs> being in, you know, an amazing elite, uh, you know, forces in a mission to save the world. I mean, you know, it's in some ways you feel like you're saving the, the, the world with an amazing film. And of course, you know, there's plenty of causes that, you know, you would say, well, maybe the money can be used for, you know, all these other things. But I mean, you've got to inspire people uh, and, and make their lives more exciting uh, through what you can do with the imagery and the story you tell in a film. Mm -hmm. And uh, these guys do it all the time. Uh, and uh, they originated on top of it. And uh, then they find new ways to show you that. And, you know, some of it involves our technology and some of it doesn't. And, you know, the idea is brilliant. And uh, that's why people go back to see these films. That's why people follow Jim Cameron, follow Chris Nolan, you know, pe people like that. And, uh, yeah, there, there's they make converts out of you. You know, you, you don't want to, you know, wear a a sack for the rest of your life, shave your head and follow them. But I mean, do you want to see a damn movie they made? You know, yeah. Uh, you doesn't want to change your diet, but uh, yeah, your diet of films. Definitely. For sure. Awesome. Right on. Well, thanks for that. And thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. And uh, we got to do it again. I know you're, you're, you're always around the country and you're, uh, but you've given us plenty of time today and thank you so much for that. No, no, and uh, I've really enjoyed this, and uh, I could do it again. So, uh, you know, I, I, I like what you do, and I'm happy you're doing it. And thank you for including me in the fun. <laughs>